It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Travis Wright. Thank you so much for joining us today. As part of WDET's special series examining Detroit's unprecedented bankruptcy one year later, we're joined by a couple esteemed guests here to get an intimate take on the ways in which the bankruptcy affected the Detroit Institute of Arts. Anne-Marie Erickson is the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at the DIA. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Travis. And celebrating 20 years of reporting on the arts for the city's paper of record, the Detroit Free Press. Joining us now is Mark Stryker. Mark, thank you so much for joining us as well. My pleasure. So not to undermine its short or long-term effects and the people that it impacts every day, but the Detroit bankruptcy was indeed a dramatic time, tenuous, course-changing. The city will forever be different. Life is surely different for retirees with city pensions. But much of the drama that unfolded throughout the planning and proceedings revolved around the collection at the Detroit Institute of Arts. What works could be or would be considered for sale? Why not all? Why just some? Who owns this art anyway? Who has the right? Who wants to buy the art of a bankrupt city anyways? The city was facing $19 billion in debt. At some point, the DIA was brought into the conversation. What's going to happen? Happen to shore up the end of the pensioners who are looking at their pensions being severely cut. Detroit enters bankruptcy June 2013, backing up a year, just about August 2012, Wayne, Oakland, and narrowly, if we remember right, Macomb County passed millages to fund the DIA, bringing $23 million in annual public funding for operations for the next decade. Detroit enters bankruptcy one year later. So let's start off just pre-bankruptcy, Anne-Marie. This passing of the millage, that was the catalyst for attention to the DIA regionally. Before the emergency manager came to town, Kevin Orr, and before the DIA was brought into what would eventually be known as the Grand Bargain, give us a, a rough estimate of like the state of the DIA. It was an amazing time, quite frankly. We were told by so many people that we would never pass a millage for an art museum in Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb counties. And we all, collectively, every one of my colleagues, numerous volunteers, and many other people around the city and in the counties, we worked so hard to make sure that we would be able to pass that millage that we were, quite frankly, riding a high. I remember the day after the millage, we all stood at the front doors, and it was we decided to implement free admission immediately. And we stood at the front doors just thanking people for voting for us, for coming to visit, for using their free admission, inviting them back as often as they could. So we were really um, very euphoric at that point in time and also planning a bit for a new reality. We had new obligations to meet to the counties. We um, were beginning a phase of public funding that we were not familiar with, and so we knew we had a learning curve. And in the back of our minds, there was that cloud of potential bankruptcy for the city. I think one of the things that's really important to remember about the museum in this big story is that the museum itself is on its own dramatic arc that basically dates back a century and its drive to finally solve the financial problems that it's had through most of its history in the 20th century uh, and into the 21st century. And so it's just important to remember that at, that the museum was sort of minding its own business, as it were, when the bankruptcy came up and the museum got dragged into it because of its relationship with the city. We use the metaphor a lot of the museum being a pawn in the bankruptcy drama, and mm. I don't think there's any question that's what happened. Let's talk about the relationship between the collection at the Detroit Institute of Arts and the city of Detroit, because I feel like for some people out there, probably still a little bit murky in terms of just who owns what and what 
what at the DIA the city has rights to. It was confusing for an emergency manager to figure out. I'm sure a lot of listeners have a hard time wrapping their head around it. So what was the question in terms of what the city owns and what the museum owns? I wish I could make it simple, but there were a number of questions around that. The museum's position was then and continues to be that we hold the entire collection in trust for the public, which means we take care of it, we display it, we interpret it, we steward it, but really it's your collection and you should come in anytime and be able to see it. The city or the creditors, on the other hand, felt that since the city technically owned the collection and the buildings. Every work of art inside the museum was a fungible asset that could be sold. The other complicating factor in there is that many of the works in the collection came to the museum as gifts, and some of those gifts carried conditions that would have prevented sale or prohibited sale. So you had our very clear path, we are in public trust, we can't be sold, You had this secondary path, which was even if a judge had ruled against us on that point, we would have been fighting object by object because some of them had very clear and definitive restrictions on potential sale. And then you had the creditor's position, which was it could all be sold. I would uh, um, back that story up a little bit and uh, remind people that the museum was founded uh, as a private institution, as were the vast majority of our major public museums uh, in the United States. Um, founding in 1887, Anne Marie, is 1885. that right? 1885. Mm-hmm. And right from uh, right from the start, the museum began experiencing sort of financial difficulties mm. almost immediately in the late teens, early twenties, when the museum was facing possible closure. The trustees of the museum went to the city and they said, we need help. If you agree to fund us, you will have ownership over the collection and the building. And there was essentially um, a Faustian bargain that got made in 1919, 1919, in which all of the assets of the museum, all of the art and, and the building were basically given over to the city in exchange for funding. And that set up a structure of city ownership that made the museum unique among all its colleagues around the country. Yeah, I was going to ask, is this something that happened anywhere else? Not at the scale of, of the DIA. There yeah. are a few museums around the country that are owned uh, in total or partially by the city, but nothing like the DIA with a collection of its size and stature. You know, Emory said earlier, technically the city owns the art. Well, technically is an important word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Open to legal interpretation. Open to legal interpretation for sure, but that is the mechanism by which the art was put on the table because in a municipal bankruptcy, everything the city owns becomes an asset that may or may not be able to be used to satisfy creditors And it's because of that Faustian bargain back in 1922 that when the bankruptcy happened, that's the pathway that put the the art on the table in the bankruptcy. When you first started hearing the rumblings that emergency manager Kevin Orr and his team was indeed considering the art at the DIA as a sellable asset. Did those rumblings start to come from the outside or the inside? And and by that, I mean, was Orr and his team in the city, were they very transparent from the beginning as to what their intentions might be? Or were these rumors coming from people in your kind of more personal circles that, hey, this is this is something that they're talking about heads up? So nothing in a bankruptcy is transparent. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. 
in many ways, as you're going through it, it feels scripted. Hmm. But nothing is transparent. You can never really trust that what you're hearing is exactly what's coming across the table at you. In terms of how we first learned that the collection was at risk, that came in a telephone call with one of the Jones Day attorneys. And at that point in time, he was very much representing himself as an advisor to the DIA and a friend and a collaborator mm. and how outlining how we could get through this together. That changed. That script yeah. changed, um, I think, in the second meeting with him. So you're always very conscious of the fact that, that there's a script here and that people are walking a path, but you can never really be sure exactly what's happening until finally as the grand bargain began to unfold, everything started falling into place. The uh, Jones Day attorneys representing the city, Kevin Orr's people, uh, met with Gene Gargaro, the chairman of the board of the DIA, and Graham Beale, the director at the time, and laid out in much stronger terms that, yes, the art could be sold, and we have the power to do so, and you, the museum, need to do something to help us raise money or else, and that was the clear implication. $500 million. They wanted about $20 million a year over 20 years, between 400 to $500 million out of the museum. And that meeting uh, took place uh, in mid-May. And after that meeting, we as reporters began hearing rumblings about all of this. And yeah. that prompted our first story, uh, which ran the end of May, and that story that John Gallagher, a business reporter at the Free Press, and I wrote, there was a big bang that let the world know <laughs> that the art was at risk. That was the story. What was their capability of talking about the art and the value of art? I mean, <laughs> was there, uh, you know, you kind of met them halfway to be able to talk their language. Was there any sort of reciprocity when it comes to the value of art and like what it really means there? No, no. no they, you have to remember that Kevin Orr is not an art critic, <laughs> although he, he, he said he loved art, and uh, uh, the lawyers are not, they're not art experts, they're bankruptcy experts, and their charge was to get a deal with the creditors and uh, put together a plan of adjustment that the bankruptcy judge would confirm in court. Uh, I mean, they were not going to have a conversation about the, the artistic value of the art. And, and they really weren't going to have a conversation about the value of the museum as a whole to the community. Is that a Detroit. conversation that was ever uh, attempted to you know, be forced upon them to have? I don't think that that ever came up until I testified in, right. in bankruptcy court. Right. And Judge Rhodes specifically asked about the value of the museum to the community. Up until then, as Mark said, the works on the walls were assets. And the goal of the creditors... And their lawyers was to extract as much value from every single one of those assets as they possibly could. Well, let's talk about value. What did we learn about the value, uh, you know, the actualities of what the DIA's collection is worth? It depends upon whom you ask. And it depends upon... There are multiple appraisals. And it depends on how you ask the questions and who did the appraisals and what factors they looked at. And what the art market is doing uh, at that point. There were a number of, of uh, um, formal evaluations that were done. They were all done kind of in the manner of a shotgun marriage. Christie's, the auction house, did a, a very quick and cursory uh, evaluation of just art that they believed was 
purchase with city funds, mm-hmm. and they came up with a, a, an evaluation that I recall s- somewhere between $850 million and $1.2 billion, mm-hmm. I think, was their uh, evaluation. Later on, um, an art investment firm in, in New York called ArtVest did an evaluation at the behest of um, the city, and their numbers came up between 4.6 and $8 billion. I think it gets confusing. I think their high end was close to eight. Yeah, but but they also said that if this work was going to try, if it was going to be sold uh, under market conditions and a fire sale, it would only bring about one billion dollars, maybe or even less, actually. Uh, And then there was a third report that was done by a another art investment firm that was paid for by the creditors, which and they did come up with the eight billion dollar high end, but they used all kinds of. Theoretical. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It was very theoretical. As part of WDET's special series, Detroit Bankruptcy, one year later, we are speaking with the executive vice president of the Detroit Institute of Arts, Anne Marie Erickson, and longtime arts journalist Mark Stryker, who thoroughly covered the proceedings of the bankruptcy as it relates to the DIA and the Detroit Free Press. Uh, If if there was to be the cinematic recreation of the events of Detroit's (laughs) bankruptcy, uh, what would be that scene regarding the DIA in which, you know, those tense orchestral swells would start to come in on the soundtrack? There were lots of them. For sure. I mean, it was it was a series of peaks (laughs) and valleys. Yeah, it was a series of peaks and valleys. Um, There were, you know, moments when we were sure that things were were really rock solid. And then you'd find out that, no, they weren't. The foundations coming together in the Grand Bargain, that was huge. Absolutely huge. Um, Judge Rosen and Eugene Dreiker, the mediators who put that whole thing together, were absolutely masterful in the way they did that. And then getting the state to come in. And I think that was truly an amazing example of the state from all sides, all party lines, all different positions deciding that this was an important thing to do. The DIA raising $100 million for pensions, that was huge too. And I think it's always important to remember, for us, yes, it was clearly about the art. I mean, that's why most of us work at the museum. But it was also about a couple of other things, and one of them was clearly the people who collect pensions from the city. And I had kind of a horse in that race. My dad was a city employee for years. My mom still gets a benefit. I was very concerned about what was going to happen to her. And then on the bigger issue, it was getting Detroit through bankruptcy quickly. And people tend to kind of gloss over that. But that was absolutely critical because if Detroit had lingered in bankruptcy for years and years and years, no one would be investing in this city right now. People would be looking to other places to take their financial and, and their their living investments. We would continue to see a decline in population in the city. It would have been awful. So getting, you know, protecting the art collection was absolutely key. Protecting the pensioners to the best of our ability and then getting through bankruptcy fast. Well, let's talk about that moment in which we learned that the works at the DIA were indeed protected, that they would not be touched as part of the grand bargain in Detroit's bankruptcy. Talk about an orchestral swell. I mean, that's a that's a <laughs> moment regionally that I think is still resounding for a lot of people. Uh, well, I think you could pretty much, you know, feel the size of relief, not just emanating from the museum on Woodward Avenue, but sort of the entire community and everybody around the world that loves art and understood the enormity of the stakes. You could feel this sort of massive exhale, but the real turning point cinematic moment 
in the bankruptcy as it related to the DIA is certainly the creation of the grand bargain. And that sort of begins with Gerald Rosen, the, the mediator, the chief judge of the court here, uh, who was appointed by, by Judge Rhodes to be the, the mediator in the, in the case. And he's in Florida on a few days vacation in August, and he, he's sort of looking at the city's plan and, is, and sees how dire all the numbers are with 18, 19 billion dollars in liabilities, and uh-huh. he sees the museum, and he sees the pensions, and he's trying to figure out a way to solve this riddle, and and he, he makes a drawing. He literally makes a doodle, and he writes, you know, DIA, draws a a square around it as if trying to wall it off and mm. he starts doodling words like art trust and foundations and what about the state and and essentially what he's doing there he's trying to figure out how can we tie how can we raise money to throw into the pot to help clear away out of bankruptcy for the city because you have to remember the issue here is you've got uh, all of these creditors are owed money that's why they're screaming for the art because they want more than the uh, few pennies on the dollar that the city had to pay for them. And so the only way you get a deal, the other way you get a, a, a plan together that people will sign off on is if you can find a source of cash. So you had two big issues in the bankruptcy here. One was how do you protect the pensioners? How do you raise enough cash to satisfy the creditors enough that they'll agree to the deal because they know they're not going to get everything? And how do you protect the museum? And the magic of the grand bargain is that it tied the plight of pensioners to the plight of the museum and the mechanism by which all of these third-party entities, the foundations, the state, the DIA itself, would come together, put up a pot of money that would all go to the pensioners, and in exchange for that, the DIA gets walled off, taken off the table, and, oh, by the way, gets decoupled from city ownership and then becomes its own nonprofit, that little trick of tying all those things together, that's where the magic is. As the grand bargain begins to come together and the foundation community, national and local, begin to sort of coalesce around this idea, that's the point at which Kevin Orr, as the emergency manager, begins to see, okay, here's a mechanism by which I can begin to really move toward getting a confirmable plan and it's as the grand bargain develops that Kevin Orr, who previously, remember, had been the enemy of the DIAs, or at least had been saying very clearly, I can sell art if I want. And never mind that the attorney general of the state said in a formal opinion that you can't sell art. It's protected as a charitable trust. Never mind all that. I think I can sell art. But once the grand bargain comes together, it's at that point then that Orr begins to understand and the museum begins to understand that all of a sudden... We are stronger together They're stronger together than Mm -hmm. apart. You know, for a long time, Kevin Orr and the city were enemies of the DIA. Then, as the grand bargain emerges, they're best friends, and it's together, they're stronger. And together, we were stronger at that point. But I think it's always important to remember that the DIA was always pursuing a legal strategy, always thinking about our core argument, which was that we held the art in public trust, something that never really was talked about that much until the very end. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, it's it's fascinating because, you know, Judge Rhodes, in his final decision in which he approved uh, the city's plan of adjustment, did not definitively rule on the question of whether or not art could be sold or not. 
he did say in the course of his um, opinion that he was of the mind that the museum probably would would have prevailed had he had to rule on the notion of whether or not art could be sold. But he believed that the idea that expressed in the attorney general's opinion that art was held in the public trust or charitable trust, that that would have held sway. Um, so he'd have to be really convinced. He did say, I would have had to have been convinced. But had he ruled that art could have been sold, certainly the DIA would have appealed that decision. It would be in court right now, for sure. And so uh, because of appeal. the grand bargain, because of the way that was orchestrated, uh, we never even had to get to that point. Th- that's correct. So, it, I mean, it is worth remembering right. that the next time something like this happens in some other municipality and there are assets on the table that a city owns, including art, the Detroit case doesn't necessarily give you a precedent for whether or not that question of whether or not a municipality's art is truly held in the char- in a charitable trust, if that precludes a kind of a forced sale in municipal bankruptcy. We have legal scholars that right now are working on law review articles looking just at those questions. What are the ways in which the DIA as an institution has now changed? Is there a different DIA post-bankruptcy? Well, I think the the critical thing that comes out of bankruptcy is that we are no longer linked to the city. Um, we are a standalone, independent, nonprofit organization in charge of our own destiny. I can't overemphasize the importance of that. That was always a threat hanging over the institution. There are also challenges that come to the museum as a result of bankruptcy. The DIA raised $100 million for pensions. That really set back our own fundraising efforts. Now, as I say that, we were perfectly happy to do that. In anybody's book, it's a great deal to free the collection from threat for $100 million and to have that $100 million go to help people. So we're happy to do that. But that did put our endowment fundraising significantly behind. So we're looking still for that financial sustainability that Mark was talking about at the beginning of the interview. We are not there yet. We're working very hard to get there. And we're doing it in the context of continuing to present great art to the residents of our area. And I think that that's one of the most remarkable achievements of the DIA throughout the entire bankruptcy. And something that I credit every single one of my colleagues for was that no matter what was happening, we were a great museum every single day. We opened our doors. We presented great art. We did wonderful exhibitions. We gave our visitors the experience they've come to expect from the DIA. And that, as unsung as it is for me is one of the great triumphs of the bankruptcy. So in closing, heading into 2016, Mark, 20 years reporting on the arts in Detroit, what's the state of the DIA right now and and what's the trajectory for its future? The museum certainly has the greatest shot at solving its financial problems than it has had certainly in the 20 years, and I've, I've been here, but I mean, my read of it is that today they are in better situated to really solve the problem long term than they have been for 50, 60 years. The elements are in place for them to be able to do that. Um, now, whether they can make it, I mean, that we'll see how they get there and, and what happens over the next seven years in terms of fundraising and, the, and the, the region's economy. But I think, you know, they have a real shot at it. I would also say I think that there has been great recognition during the bankruptcy and now as we go forward at the role that our major cultural institutions play in the health of the city. And we see how the DIA and the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and Michigan Opera Theater and the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit and 
the myriad of smaller uh, organizations, the extraordinary number of artists that work here in Detroit that have moved here in recent years because they want to be in Detroit and the artistic vitality that you feel in the city. I think that more people today see arts and culture as a real driver of of urban redevelopment and and the, and the sort of the long term prospects of the city in a way that they haven't in the past. If there was maybe a silver lining to the bankruptcy, it was that uh, the focus of the attention on the DIA maybe brought the museum's role to the fore in terms of leading the city's revival. Mark Stryker has been writing about the arts in Detroit at the Detroit Free Press for 20 years. Mark, also congratulations on that. And uh, I know that the bankruptcy was an incredible chapter. Absolutely. Thank you. And Marie, thank you so much for coming in and lending a voice to what was happening as the bankruptcy was unfolding from both a professional and a personal level as the vice president of the DIA, but also as a resident. Lifelong Detroiter. I really appreciate that as well. Thank you. Anne-Marie Erickson is Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at the DIA. Mark Stryker writes for the Detroit Free Press. For more coverage of our special series, Digging Deep into Detroit One Year Post-Bankruptcy, you can learn more at WDET.org. You are listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET.